Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, yes, the political climate in the United States is marked by ultra-partisanship. So it's a good time to ask, how's the Constitution holding up? A recent event brought together two gentlemen with a depth of political and jurisprudent experience to explore that question. Attorney William Ruckelshaus was the first director of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. He also served briefly as Deputy Attorney General under President Nixon. He lost that job during the infamous Saturday Night Massacre. Unwilling to obey Nixon's order to fire Watergate Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox, Ruckelshaus resigned. Bob Ferguson is Washington State's Attorney General. He came to national fame for his successful court challenge to President Trump's Muslim ban. He is also a master chess player, which factors into his approach to his job. Ruckelshaus and Ferguson participated in this event titled Constitutional Stress Test. Can the democracy survive the current president? They took questions from Larry Hubble, director of Seattle University's Institute of Public Service, and multimedia journalist Joni Balter at SU's Piggott Hall on January 11th. Jenny Cecil Moore recorded the event. Good evening, everyone. Good evening and, and welcome. Uh, welcome to campus. Uh, my name is David Powers. I'm the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences here at Seattle University. I want to welcome all of you and our guests here this evening. Uh, this is the conversation series. We've had, uh, for the past three years now, uh, events like this every quarter, where we bring uh, uh, guests from our region and beyond, uh, who really, people who are committed to lives in public service, who have been very active in public service in issues around social justice and addressing key issues facing our country. Uh, this is sponsored by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Institute for Public Service. It's really very deeply connected and aligned with our goals as, a, as the College of Arts and Sciences here at Seattle University uh, to provide a really quality liberal arts education that allows students to think critically about important current issues facing our community in the 21st century. Uh, just as our students strive really to change the world and to be leaders, uh, we want to empower leaders for a more just and humane world. Uh, the guests that we bring to this conversation series are working on those sorts of issues in a variety of different, uh, different places. Now, we, we of course have to do our standard disclaimer that um, you know, we, Seattle University does not uh, support or oppose positions of the speakers we bring to campus. Uh, the views expressed are those of the speakers, and the Institute of Public Service is uh, a sponsor of this event. Uh, but I want to take a, a minute and mention our two interviewers and then hand it over uh, to Dr. Hubble, who will uh, introduce our guests, who I'm sure many of you are very familiar with. Um, but I'd like to uh, recognize and note uh, first Joni Balter. Uh, Joni Balter is our professional in residence here at the Institute for Public Service. She's a prize-winning multimedia journalist and, uh, uh, again, professional in residence here at Seattle University uh, and teaches at that other university uh, here in Seattle as well. Um, she uh, is a KCTS political analyst and uh, advisor, also uh, has contributed to KUOW and Bloomberg View. She will be an interview at the Crosscut series, which will be here on campus February 2nd as well, coming up soon, uh, and has been a columnist for the Seattle Times. Uh, Professor Larry Hubble joined Seattle University in 2014 as director of the Institute for Public Service after 25 years at the University of Wyoming. 
As a Fulbright senior specialist, uh, he's worked and taught in Lithuania, Sierra Leone, and earlier this year, in, er, earlier the fall, in Macedonia. In addition to teaching and consulting, he's published 60 articles in peer-reviewed journals. And prior to his work in uh, academia, he worked at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and at ACTION, which at the time was the administ uh, administered the Peace Corps and VISTA programs. So it's my pleasure to welcome you all, to welcome our guests, and uh, to ask Professor Hubble to come introduce our uh, interviewees. And thank you all for being here. Thank you, David, uh, and thank you, audience, for coming on what was a fairly inclement Seattle day today. Um, yeah, let me make, I'd like to make an additional plug for our event that's occurring with Crosscut on uh, February 2nd. Uh, on Friday night, uh, there's also a whole day of uh, activities going on in, on February 3rd and Saturday. But in, probably in this venue, we're going to be offering um, uh, a session on Western governors discuss climate change, income inequality, and immigration. And it's going to feature Jay Inslee and Governor Kate Brown. And there is a remote possibility, if the landslides stop, that Jerry Brown might be coming too. We're not, we're, he's still considering it. Um, so uh, that is, however, not a free event. So make sure that you buy your ticket online Go to the Crosscut Festival. Um, let me just say one thing about tonight. Uh, we have passed out some cards. So this event will be broken into two sections. In the first section, Joni and I are going to ask questions. And then you'll have the opportunity to ask questions. Uh, and please have them written by about 10 to 7, because uh, Lindsay and my graduate program coordinator and a few other people will be collecting those questions. Um, now, let me go on to introduce our two speakers tonight, who it, it's just wonderful having them both here on stage. Um, the first, uh, Bob Ferguson. Bob Ferguson is the Washington Attorney General, the state's chief legal officer. Prior to, prior to being elected to the Attorney General's position, he was a member of the King County Council. Bob Ferguson was first elected Attorney General in 2012 and was re-elected in 2016. During the past year, he was named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the country. <laughs> he has been recently involved in a number of high-profile cases, which you probably know about, uh, <laughs> uh, including several in which he took, uh, his office took on the federal government. His office was successful in challenging the Trump administration's first executive order, barring immigration from seven majority Muslim countries. Even more. It'll be a long night. <laughs> Even more recently, his office is filing a legal challenge to the Federal Communications Commission decision to end net neutrality. <laughs> Now, aside from his legal career, and I'm really impressed by this, because according to his bio, he's been to every Major League Baseball park. That's one of my aspirations. <laughs> so he's an avid baseball fan and also an internationally rated chess master. <laughs> Next, we have Bill Ruckelshaus. 
Bill Ruckelshaus has had a long career in government in the private sector. He was the fifth and the first and fifth administrator of the US EPA. And on a personal note, let me say, I used to be an EPA employee, and I was there when Bill was administrator during his second stint, and he turned an agency that was very troubled and really righted the ship. And all of us at EPA greatly appreciate it. During his first term as EPA administrator, the EPA banned DDT. He also served as the acting director of the FBI. Mr. Ruckelshaus received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Obama. <laughs> However, perhaps what he is most known for was his action as Deputy Attorney General during the Nixon administration. In a period in which some parallels exist with the present day, We'll explore that later tonight. Uh, Nixon, in October 1973, ordered Attorney General Elliot Richardson to fire the special pro prosecutor, Archibald Cox, who in was investigating Richard Nixon. When Richardson refused, Nixon fired him. Then Nixon ordered Bill Ruckelshaus to fire Cox. When he also refused, Nixon also fired Bill Ruckelshaus. <laughs> I'll tell you, you don't usually get an a crowd response like that for being fired. But, and, uh, and by the way, then uh, Nixon then ordered the Solicitor General, you may have heard of him, Robert Bork, to fire Cox, and he complied. So uh, thank you very much, and we're going to start the questions. And off we go. So Mr. Ruckelshaus, as Larry just mentioned, you're pretty well known for that, that moment where you uh, refused to fire Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox. Let's relive that moment for a second here. Very briefly, why did you refuse to obey your president? Because what he was asking me to do was uh, uh, not defensible. Uh, he was, in my judgment, he was fundamentally wrong in discharging Archibald Cox, who had been appointed with the president's blessing as well as the attorney general's. When I was confirmed as deputy attorney general, which was the position I held when I was fired. How I long did you hold that position? Pardon me? How long were you deputy? 20 minutes. Oh, no. <laughs> no, wait I, thought a we should no. I was attorney general 20 minutes. It was between the time Elliot got fired and I got fired. That's, I, that's not long enough to get your picture on the wall down there. I guess. <laughs> uh, in any event, we all that week had been a uh, firestorm, much like every week since the 1st of January in the current administration. Uh, chaos reigned. Uh, and first... There was an effort to keep the tapes that uh, would have revealed Nixon's worst offenses from possession of the special prosecutor, from the possession of the, of the uh, Congress, who also was investigating it, just like it's going on now. It's almost eerie how, how close it is. Uh, in any event, uh, when the president, 
first ask Elliot, who refused, and then myself. Uh, my feeling is that being in the high levels of American government is something I would recommend everybody in this room to be have that opportunity. But you have to tell yourself when you take one of those jobs, there are lines I won't I won't step over. I'm not sure what they are. I can't define them in advance. But you just have to say if you think that what you're being asked to do is fundamentally wrong, you simply have to say, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and <laughs> it's really not that hard a decision once you've said that to yourself beforehand. Uh, so that was, that, that's a short version of what Thank I Thank you. Mr. Attorney General, you are famous, among other things, for lawsuits. And I asked you when you came in if, if I missed one today, but um, you have su sued the federal government, uh, the Trump administration to be specific, 19 times. Is that number good? Okay. So in general, we're talking government 101. Is this an effective way to curb the power of um, any president? Sure, so uh, thanks, Joni, uh, for, for having me here. Thanks to all of you for being here. Um, it's an honor to be here, especially with Mr. Ruckelhouse. A big round of applause for him. I mean, he's really just a, a legendary figure, so. And, and he's obviously a fantastic role model for anyone who's interested in public service of any kind, so it's just it's an honor to be here with you, Bill. Um, Joni did ask me as we were on stage if, I, uh, if I'd sued the administration today. I said no, but I approved another filing today. So stay tuned, <laughs> stay, stay tuned for that. I, I guess in terms of whether it's effective, um, well look, I, you know, I, I went to law school uh, because I believe in the power of the law, right? right. The, a, a courthouse is the great leveler. It's an even playing field. It's not the loudest voice that prevails in a courthouse. Um, it's the Constitution, and I believe that, and that's why I went to law school, and so I do think it's been effective. You mentioned 19 lawsuits. Five of those cases have been decided. There's no more appeals. The cases are over. We're 5-0. and oh. We won all five of those. So, um, so yeah, I, I think it is. I can't, you know, the, the law can't solve all the problems. Some of those have to be worked out in the political manner through Congress with the president, right? But when the president acts in unconstitutional fashion, we all have a role to play. Bill had his, and my role, I think, is pretty clear to, uh, when appropriate, to take the administration to court. Uh, I'd like to ask this question to both of you, and I'll start with Bob. Could you give us an assessment of where we stand as a country in terms of our democracy right now? I was hoping Bill would go first on that one, right? <laughs> there. Um, so, uh, well, for, I guess, I'll, I'm an optimist by nature. I'm just gonna start with that. I'm an optimist by nature. So. Take what I say with, with that lens in mind. Um, look, is our democracy, and let me take another statement. I, do I think this is a dark time for our country with this administration? Hell yes, okay, I mean, let's be clear. Now that said, yes, is our democracy under stress uh, from this president? I believe that. Um, in particular with what I find of many troubling things, especially troubling is core institutions, our press, uh, the judiciary, the attacks on those institutions, there's a corrosive effect that happens with that when the president speaks in the way that he does. I, it may be hard to undo those. That said, on the positive side, hey, he has been checked in the courts, right? He's losing over and over and over again in the courts. And I think the press has really demonstrated itself as well in the way it's holding the president accountable. The courts have done that as well. So in a way, it's also what's going on has 
demonstrate the strength of our democracy. I think our democracy ultimately is stronger than any one person, no matter how corrosive I think that person is. So I have a lot of faith in our institutions. I think those institutions are demonstrating their strength uh, in the past year, and I think that'll continue uh, for as long as he's president. I think what Bob is doing is preserving uh, the essential role of our institutions. And if in periods like this, when these institutions are under attack, particularly from an administration that's supposed to be administering the, all of them, uh, it's very necessary for them to have supporters in other branches of government. And the judiciary is today the one branch that is holding on to some of the essential pieces of our of our institutions. If you take Environmental Protection Agency as an example, it's under assault from within uh, to try to change uh, a lot of the progress that we've made over the last 45 years. And the courts are the last resort, really, where uh, many of the assignments that EPA has are being undercut by uh, the individual running it. And because attorneys general like Bob and others around the country are willing to step up uh, and, and fight those changes, those fundamental changes in the courts, uh, it not only slows it down, but in some cases stops. I think in spite of the fact that we are in a very chaotic period, now our institutions are holding. It's necessary for us all to keep our eyes on them because their support is from us is going to be absolutely necessary for them to survive. Uh, but I, I would agree with Bob, the essential nature of our democracy today is in the strength of our institutions and our values like uh, equality and freedom uh, that are being preserved by these same institutions. Mr. Attorney General, I've had to check my phone throughout the day to make sure I didn't miss anything on DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Uh, at one point this week, uh, President Trump was, was preparing to use DACA in negotiations for other immigration reforms. Clearly, it was about the wall. That, that, that seemed clear. But a federal judge this week in California uh, announced that DACA will temporarily remain the law of the land. So since you've been involved in lawsuits like that, uh, what do you think is the impact? both on President and the Congress of the lawsuit on DACA, yours and you, you referred when we were talking here uh, to another one. So there's a couple of them going, many of them going. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. I'll try and keep it short and feel free to follow up. So there are two main lawsuits challenging uh, the President's decision to uh, end the uh, protections for DREAMers in our country, uh, effective in early March, I believe. Um, just to be clear, there's about 800,000 DREAMers in the country. Uh, there's thousands of DREAMers here in Washington State. As you know, these are individuals brought here as children through no fault of their own. They have to meet certain criteria to qualify as DREAMers and to stay in our country. Those protections end, I think, on March 5th, given the President's decision. Uh, I filed a lawsuit with a number of other states. We have a hearing on our case next week. California filed their own lawsuit. They have so many DREAMers, as you know. Uh, and it was that decision where the court said they granted the injunction for the, uh, the plaintiff saying, the president cannot take that action. The implications are, I mean, part legal, part political, right? On the legal front, we'll see what the administration does. Do they appeal that right to the Ninth Circuit or not? Uh, we'll see with our hearing, which is currently scheduled for next week in New York, what happens there. Does that judge agree or not? So there'll be a legal process on this. I wouldn't have brought the lawsuit if I didn't think we'd prevail, right? I think we have good arguments, but courts will ultimately decide that. On the political side, 
I don't spend too much time thinking about uh, when I'm filing a lawsuit or we're talking about our lawsuits, what the political implications of that will be. It's just we're pretty consumed with the law and our cases and that keeps us pretty busy. I mean, I guess I would hope that uh, when members of Congress see that courts are declaring the president's action unconstitutional, replacing injunctions on them, that that raises their awareness of it and keeps the pressure on them to actually do something about it. Um, and I, I guess lastly, what I would say is that in all the cases we filed, yes, there's always a legal issue that's, that's involved, the Constitution or federal laws. But you know, so much of what's involved is goes to Bill's point about our values, really. Each of the cases, they're fundamental to who we are as a people, our immigration, um, uh, who we allow into our country and what our values are around that. When it comes to dreamers, just one thing I'll point out is in order to become a dreamer, you have to provide information to the federal government. You have to come out of the shadows. You have to say who you are, where you live, who your family members are. They may or may not be documented. Where you work, you get the idea. You've got to voluntarily turn that over to the federal government. The federal government has promised not to use that information against those dreamers to deport them. In fact, there's a, a federal government website about DACA that has a Q&A, and one of the questions has always been, can, I, can the federal government use this information against you? Answer, no, we'll never use that information against you. When the day when Attorney General Sessions announced that the president was gonna revoke those protections for dreamers, that question and that answer on the website were removed. There's been no assurance from the federal government that they will not honor their word. Well, that goes to who we are as a people. A deal's a deal, right? You, I have nine-year-old twins. One of the first things you teach your kids is a deal's a deal. You keep your word. You trade that baseball card with your buddy, you don't get to go back afterwards if you realize you gave up a rookie card, Mickey Mantle, right? It doesn't work that way, right? <laughs> a deal's a deal. Well, I mean, that goes to this case as well, right? Who we are as a people, and uh, that's what's at stake in this case as well. So another case, um, we started this year, uh, February, I think it was or the end of January, uh, with your lawsuit on the travel ban. Yeah. First out of the gate on that one. Yes. Um, can we talk about some of the constitutional principles that were at stake sure. in that case and how that matters to everyone in this room and every American? Man, well, it was, uh, uh, and the travel ban. Uh, you know, first I'll just say, it turned out to be, we knew it was a big case, it turned out to be so much bigger than we could possibly imagine. I, mean, I just want to be clear, in making the decision when I was with my Solicitor General, we knew it was an important decision, but we just had no sense of scale of what was gonna come out of that. I guess for me, uh, I mean, there's, I'll try and keep it short. Um, you know, at that time, the travel ban was popular when he issued it. It's important to remember that. And legal experts, if you turned on CNN and watched Anderson Cooper with legal experts like Jeffrey Tubin or Alan Dershowitz, professor at Harvard, they all said a lawsuit will never work. That was the accepted conventional wisdom. That first weekend, we talked it over and we thought we had good arguments, that we could win. And so it was a combination of feeling we had good arguments, but also I have to say that what the president did, you know, it really pissed me off. I mean, it really... No. You know, it really, no. it really did. I mean, it really did. And I just felt, um, you know, to Bill's point, I was interested when you said your decision wasn't really a hard one in a certain sense. It was easy in a way. Once you get your mind to a certain place, there are certain lines. I mean, honestly, it was kind of the same way for us, for me. I just felt... Yes, we knew it was an important decision, a very important decision, but I gotta be honest, in a way it really wasn't all that hard. Washingtonians are being harmed, they're being turned away at our airports. Students at our universities can't come back to Washington State. It's crazy, right? We think we have good legal arguments, and I as Attorney General think I can bring the lawsuit. Well, if the answers to those questions are yes, yes, and yes, why would I not file the lawsuit? It's my job, right? So in a way it was an easy decision, of course recognizing 
the impacts might be significant. It'd be a bad day at the office if the judge ultimately disagreed with us, right? Bad weekend, but, uh, too. But we though, felt right? it was the right thing, yeah. And a lot was at stake in terms of uh, who we are as a country. Uh, Bill, going back in time, uh, President Nixon, as we all know, was facing imp impending uh, impeachment. Short of him stepping down, which he did, were folks within the administration thinking of ways to possibly limit his power? To limit his power? Yes. Uh, well, we, we, under, our, under the Constitutionary, we've, of course, assigned the question of the uh, suitability of the president for his continuing power to the legislature. Uh, it's assigned first to the House, where they have to decide to impeach or charge him. That's, it's not the same thing as convicting. And then to the Senate, uh, where that conviction, they take the charges of the impeachment, see if they're satisfied, and then decide whether or not they're going to ask him to step down. No president has ever gone through that whole process and stepped down. Nixon start, stopped uh, about halfway through the House and resigned because he was told by the members of the Senate and a few members of the House that he could not survive a vote uh, in the Senate, even though it took two-thirds to ask him to step down. The closest, we've only had three presidents that have come, including Nixon, that have come close to uh, being in, not only impeached but convicted. The closest, of course, was, uh, was James, or, uh, Johnson, Andrew Johnson, and uh, he uh, came within one vote. If, if there had been one more vote, two-thirds of the members of the Senate would have uh, told him to step down. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, it, it is what, it's what we've chosen to use as a method of removing, removing the president. It's been spelled out in the Constitution. Uh, and that's what people will support. I mean, if they're going to support it, that's what they'll support. It has to do with timing. Are the members of the legislatures in the same party as the president. If they are, forget it. It's not going to happen. Uh, I mean, it could happen. It could be a set of circumstances that would force everybody to decide this has gone far enough. But basically, it's going to be up to the, above the first three words of the U.S. Constitution. We, the people, are going to have to vote and, uh, and vote strongly that what's been happening, what's going on, is not tolerable. But if that doesn't happen, then uh, there'll be no impeachment. Thank you, Bill. Um, Bob, I would like to ask you a question. I realize it's a little out of your area of expertise, but it, uh -oh. it, does, it does relate to a constitutional issue. And uh, that is the Senate and House are considering a bill that would prohibit the president from launching a military strike upon North Korea unless war is declared. In your view, would this infringe upon the president's commander-in-chief authority? I, way out of my pay grade. I mean, I just, you know, uh, I've got my hands full with our 19 lawsuits and whatever's coming next. So, I mean, honestly, I just, that's just not an issue I've wrestled with or looked at or um, it's, we've got our hands full to what we've, what we've actually got on our plate. Sorry to take a pass on that one, but I just wouldn't want to even wait in yet. I knew it was a little, Bill, do you have any view of that? Well, there's a provision. Uh, in the law that allows the president to take his steps if we're attacked, uh, it, it's been upheld even in the, in the under the Constitution. 
So if we were attacked, he would have that authority to move very quickly. He also, I'm, I feel certain, even this president would convene the Congress and ask their permission to do what it is he wanted to do to respond. Uh, but he has the, I think he has the authority now to, do, to, do, to, that, to that kind of situation. I have one for you, Mr. Ruckelshaus. The Congress successfully and overwhelmingly agreed to limit some of the president's power by eliminating the ability to remove sanctions against Russia. Is this a smart way to restore balance to our democracy, do you think? Well, I'm not sure I understand the nature of the question. Is it, is it, you think it's a good idea for the Congress to limit? To, to sort of preempt, preemptively decide that they, don't, they want to make sure that he doesn't do something, so they go ahead and pass legislation like that. Well, it's not the, probably the best way. The best way to do it is the way we haven't been doing it for the last 40 years, and that is working together to try to move the country toward a better place. Uh, there's no reason for this extreme polarization that's currently going on. And the reason a question like that arises is because the traditional means of coming together around a real crisis haven't been working. Uh, the, the government at the, at the national level, I mean, I don't think that's true at the state level. At some states it is, but mostly not. The, the government at the national level is simply not working. Uh, and there's, it's, a ne it's necessary for people to begin to pay attention to for whom you vote, for people who genuinely want to work together to advance the country's interest. How many times do you hear the public interest mentioned when you're listening to television, you hear how terrible the other side is. It's just a big waste of time. They ought to be in there working together to solve problems. If I can just add. <laughs> just add one, one thing on, on that point. Um, uh, you know, Bill mentioned sort of the dysfunction, I guess, at, at the congressional level, and your question went to sort of checks on the president that Congress yeah. obviously has. There's an interesting article I found interesting, given my role as an AG, was Charles Crothimer, a conservative columnist, uh, wrote an article, it was a, a several months ago, and his whole article was about the role of AGs, Democratic AGs, challenging the president in the courts and how many people are outraged by that. Hey, how, what are these AGs doing suing the president? Right. And he had an interesting take. He's a conservative. He said, actually, well, hey, if Congress is going to abdicate their role of being a check on the president, our democracy, back to the earlier question about is our democracy under threat, our democracy is elastic. It's fluid. Others will fill that void. And his whole premise of his article was Democrat AGs, whether you agree or not, are rightfully filling a void that Congress is abdicating as a check on the executive branch. So kind of back full circle to the earlier question, I think that is an example of that. And even someone like Charles Crothimer, he and I don't agree a lot, but that was his take on Democrat AGs taking on the president in that fashion. Well, we'll let, me, let me mention one other, uh, one other example. Andrew Johnson was almost impeached because he uh, tried to fire Edwin Stanton after the Civil War. Uh, who was the Secretary of War. The Congress didn't like Stanton, and they, they would, many of them would like to see him out, but they came together behind him, uh, and when he faced this effort on the part of the president, the president was defying the, this Tenure in Office Act, which had been passed by the Congress to protect Edmund Stanton. And the Tenure in Office Act said that if, if 
you have appointed somebody uh, in the cabinet and we've confirmed him, you can't fire him until we okay it. And so Stanton actually boarded himself in his office uh, to keep him. <laughs> and the whole reason that, that Andrew Johnson was impeached is because he fired one man, or tried to fire one man, never worked. Uh, and that law that was very difficult law to, to understand why you needed to get permission from the Congress to fire somebody was finally declared unconstitutional in 1926. Uh, talking about the health of the democracy and the stresses currently on the Constitution is hyperpartisanship. You you alluded to this uh, a threat to our democracy. Well, it certainly is uh, because a lot of things don't happen that should happen. There are a number of problems that our country's faced now for a couple of decades, for which there are a number of solutions. Let's just take Social Security as an example. Social Security is going to run out of money at some point, not too far in the future. There are a lot of solutions to Social Security. If reasonable people were to sit down and say, we need to continue to care for people when they reach the age in which they're eligible for Social Security, but we need to do it in such a way that it doesn't occupy the whole budget. How can we do that? Well, those kinds of problems, if we were functioning as a government, would be solved. And there are a number of them, and uh, that's what gets in the way of progress in a country like ours, is people who won't work together, or who refuse to, or because of the nature of our society right now, or our government right now, they can't get together and solve a problem. Uh, those kinds of problems would begin to go away, and then I think people would gain confidence that it's possible for us to work together and, and solve things. You want to chime in on that? I, I'm not sure I can improve on that answer. I guess all I would say is, uh, you know, I, I feel very fortunate. I'm, I'm from a family of seven, seven kids in my family, uh, six, six boys, one long-suffering sister. And so <laughs> it's, uh, in, in a way, it's, it's a real gift because for, for the family to stay functional, right, to not fall into dysfunction, you've got to find a way to navigate the differences that seven people plus two parents will naturally have around the dinner table. Politics, huskies, cougars, you name it, right? And, <laughs> and, and do the way where everybody's, you, you learn to appreciate people can have strongly held positions opposite to you and yet you have many things more in common than you disagree with, right? And you have to get along, you must get along or the family falls into dysfunction. And, I think that comes when you stop talking to each other or truly listening to each other. There's, uh, there's a number of things, and I, I worry that's what's happening, right? We get into our tribe. So much has been written about this, and I'll just say, like, you know, for myself, uh, you know, I think it's easy to end up talking only to the people who agree with you, right? And that's I happened think to media right? in it's, a lot of ways, right? And I think it's important for all elected officials, for example, to force themselves to get out and listen to folks who may not agree. So I'll just give you an example. In the middle you know, of the travel ban, I spoke to a Rotary Club in Vashon Island, right? Standing ovation, more Bernie supporters per capita than anywhere in the world, right? <laughs> literally, literally. That's actually and, verifiable. And that's verifiable. That's, that's true, right? That's verifiable. It's verifiable. And like two days later, I spoke to a small Rotary in the deepest red part of our state, there was no standing ovation, I want to be clear, right? And, and yet, but we're, I still gave the same talk and still spoke about the travel ban, and I'm not saying I changed anyone's mind in Eastern Washington, but I do think that they left with some more information about why I did it, and I think I learned something from the conversation back and the questions they raised as well. So the key is you have to just, you got to force yourself, even if you know it's going to be an uncomfortable conversation, just like with your siblings, or 
with, uh, with anybody else. And I think that is missing more and more in, in the public debate. Uh, let, let me give you a quick example of uh, how easy it is to cooperate if everybody decides they want to. In 1970, when the Clean Air Act first passed, and it was a massive piece of legislation aimed at cleaning up the air in the country. We had never done that on a, a united basis. Senator Muskie and Senator Baker were the majority leader, the chairman and ranking member of the Senate Environment and Public Service Committee. When I first began to administer that law, uh, it was obvious there are a lot of problems with it. it would, inevitably, they're going to be it's a big piece of legislation covering the whole country, automobiles, buildings, power plants. And so I went up to see both Muskie and, and Senator Baker, who, Howard Baker from Tennessee, and said, look, th this law is a good law and it can be very beneficial to us, but there are parts of it that need adjustment. They just have not anticipated all the issues that we could face in trying to clean up the air. So I'll just bring these, these issues for, uh, for adjustment up to the two of you and about once a month we'd meet and, and uh, go over what needed to change and they would agree and I said, okay, we'll put this aside until uh, we've got enough of them here after 10 or 12 months and we'll all three of us introduce them. They won't know what to do about that, confuse them all. Uh, so they said, fine. And we agreed on every single one of them. There was no dispute over it. There was no animus in the meetings. We got along fine. Muskie was running for president, subsequently so was Howard Baker, uh, but they still endorsed all these changes and a number of them were enacted into law in the early days of the EPA. Um, I wanted to ask you both about the freedom of the press since I've, I'm a longtime journalist and have listened to some of the things that have been said, you know, attempts to seek prior restraint on book publishing, the press is the enemy of the people. Do you think that these challenges, these comments, we talked about institutions, do you think they ultimately weaken the press or make it stronger? I think it makes it stronger. I, mean, I think that people see uh, the importance of the promise of free press in the First Amendment by watching much more carefully what's going on than they normally do. Uh, I mean, I think a lot more people are glued to their television sets and watching uh, people from different points of view, certainly, different worlds, really, uh, and can see, can ferret out of that uh, who's leveling with them and who isn't. And I, I, I personally think that freedom of the press is such a fundamental freedom that we must do everything in our power uh, to ensure that it survives. And if you're in office, you're occasionally going to get accused of doing something you think you didn't do. Uh, that's okay, uh, that's, that's fine. As long as we have a free press, the chances are uh, these institutions that we're trying to preserve will come out okay. I think it was Thomas Jefferson who said, uh, I'm paraphrasing probably poorly, if it's a choice between uh, having newspapers, right, without government or government without newspapers, I would choose newspapers without government, I think were essentially his words. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, uh, that resonates, right? Yeah. Um, that in terms of how important that was to our, you know, 
folks who put our constitution together and the way they contemplated that that democracy and the stresses that'd be incumbent on it. So I guess back to my kind of earliest point, where I, I do worry about that corrosive nature that emanates from the executive branch, the fake news, and, and what, what I think it's going to be hard to know what in the end that will do. Um, but uh, I, I think in a way it will make it stronger. I do. I can only say that I saw the post over the weekend, and that is the first time I've seen the press in, in, in recent years. It presented in a good light, and of course it was a Seattle audience, but they clapped yeah. Yeah. for the press. When does that go on? <laughs> Not enough. <laughs> okay, now we're going to pivot to impeachment. Uh, <laughs> when we met with Bill Ruckel's house last week, he said, you know, you ought to give some background information on impeachment. So I came up with some... Uh, some brief remarks here covering the history, process, and content. The House of Representatives since our founding has voted by a simple majority to impeach 19 government officials, 13 of whom were district court judges. Two presidents, Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton, have been impeached, and Richard Nixon would probably have been impeached except that he instead resigned his office. Of the 19 impeached officials, eventually the Senate acquitted seven of them. In one case, the charge was dismissed, three resigned, and eight were found guilty and were removed from office. Now, regards the process. As prescribed by the US Constitution, the House of Representatives votes on a bill of impeachment, and that bill passes if it receives a simple majority. The bill of impeachment is somewhat similar to an indictment. The bill then passes on to the Senate, where they hear evidence in a courtroom-like setting with the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court presiding. The Senate decides by a two-thirds vote whether the charged official should be removed from office. Now, regards the content, the Constitution states that impeached officials can be removed in cases of bribery, treason, or high crimes and misdemeanors. Terms bribery and treason are, are somewhat straightforward. The meanings of high crimes and misdemeanors are a little more murky. Indeed, the, the founders did not define what they meant by high crimes and misdemeanors. However, some legal scholars are in general agreement that a high crime or misdemeanor occurs if an official in some egregious ways way violates the public trust. Bill. <laughs> I have a question you for you. You want to impeach me now? <laughs> <laughs> Back in the early 70s, Gerald Ford, who was the House Minority Leader, uh, was interested in impeaching uh, Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas. And at the time, he said basically that um, an impeachable offense is whatever a majority of the House of Representatives considers it to be at a given moment. Do you agree? Gerald Ford told me once before he died that was the worst decision he ever made in his life, was to <laughs> try to get Justice Douglas impeached. Uh, he stuck with it for quite a while and was never successful. Uh, if you disagree with the judge's opinions or if you disagree with the president's policies, that is not an impeachable moment or impeachable duty uh, that you violated. So, I mean, I, I think that particular event in his life was, is not the thing that I would like to remember most about him. Mr. Attorney General, at what point is advocating for impeachment a smart or dumb strategy for Democrats? Just sort of the, so the, you the, have the, some the, folks out there right now. You have a big oh, funder yeah. of the Democrats, you know, big website, lots of social media, already talking about impeachment. 
Uh, does that help or hurt Democrats, do you think? Just politically, you mean, yeah, right? Yeah, I'm talking politically. I, you know, um, kind of my earlier point, I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about things I can't control or right. So I, um, I guess I, I think it's a reasonable conversation to be having, and that's not just me speaking. One of my predecessors was Slate Gordon, right? Um, he was an attorney general for 12 years before he became a, a U.S. senator, Republican. And he was interviewed, I forget where I saw his interview, but he was asked the question about impeachment. And uh, I think I'm paraphrasing Macri. He said, I think we're very, you know, we're getting close to that point already in terms of obstruction of justice. I mean, he was pretty candid about where he thought really? things were at. Yeah, and so. I mean, look, I know I, he wasn't a, a Trump person. I interviewed him before yes. the election. He was pretty. But, but he was pretty candid. That. Yes. And by the way, he was the first Washingtonian of prominence to call for Nixon's resignation, by the way. Great risk to himself, I'll point out, um, when he was attorney general. But so, look, do I, am I deeply disturbed by what I see in terms of potential obstruction of justice? You bet. Um, politically, man, I, I mean, so much depends on where you are as an elected official, what state you're in, what your districts are, right? So it's going to be different for one person than for another. I just will put That's that fair. out there, number, number one. Number two, I guess I'm just not sure I'm the guy to ask. I just don't, you know, I don't spend much time, you know, thinking about in those terms. Um, I guess I would just say, though, it's, it's important to, um, you know, like, for me, the, the obstruction of justice, the signs I've seen, what's been reported already, I find the signs so far to be troubling, okay? Um, and I think as long as, I think let, let the investigator do their work, right? Let them do the report, have that come out. I'll be intensely interested in what that has to say. Um, but I think there's a process here. It's going on, unless that is jeopardized in some way, all bets are off at that point. As long as they're allowed to do the work, release their, their report, I think it's a fair game for conversation, and, uh, and we'll see when the report comes out. Uh, uh, one thing, um, uh, administrative thing. Uh, if you have a question, uh, could you please pass it to the end of the aisle, and, and Lindsay will pick them up. Go ahead. Uh, well, The question of impeachment is a serious one, and that's one of the things I'm sure, Larry, you've gleaned from reading the background of the use of the impeachment mechanism to get gain some kind of... You gave us both a lot of reading after we talked to you last week. <laughs> uh, we did. <laughs> it's, a, it's a question of when. In my view today, until we hear the, from Mueller and his investigation as to what he's found, we're not going to know enough about the facts to know exactly what you, trying to impeach somebody because you disagree with their policies uh, is almost anti-democratic in some ways uh, because they were elected and they were, and just because you don't like what they're doing, that's what they said they were going to do. So it's okay not to like it, but that isn't necessarily grounds for impeachment. We have an investigation going on about these uh, cooperation with Russia during the last campaign. Uh, Mueller is a first-rate uh, lawman, prosecutor, uh, head of the FBI for 10 years, then another one. He is an absolutely straightforward, honest man. If he's allowed to do his work and the president doesn't intervene and try to fire him, and I've had some experience with that, uh, once we, actually I was both fired and resigned. I was fired, announced on Saturday night, and the next Monday the president announced my resignation had been accepted. 
So I can take either position. I digress. I'm sorry, but I do. Good digression. I, I, Good hard-hitting digression. Uh, I think we have to wait until Mueller's report comes in, assuming he's allowed to finish. Uh, and then, d depending on what the reaction is to that uh, in the Congress and in the public, depending on who's in the Congress, if it's still the same party that's, in, that's there with the president, the history of this is that impeachment efforts go nowhere because the party it will close ranks and try to protect the president. Uh, so, you know, the one thing I would warn those of you who think impeachment should be tried is there's an old adage that never shoot at the king unless you hit him. Uh, and that's not an adage you all use every night, I'm sure. But, uh, nevertheless, I, I do think that there needs to be a stronger case uh, and it needs to be buttressed by a, a examination, an investigation like we're going through with Mueller uh, and see where that comes out. Okay. Um, Bill, based on what we know now, do you think that the firing of FBI Director James Comey was the equivalent or similar to when Nixon ordered you to fire Archibald Cox? No, it, it wasn't. Uh, there were the, the, I think Comey, my, my, I, I'm just speculating here, but I think Comey was, was fired because he was not cooperating with the president in the investigation which Mueller is now heading. Uh, and he did not give, at least as far as I've been able to glean, Mueller a direct order to do something. In the case of Nixon, I was ordered to fire Archibald Cox. Archibald Cox had, when I was the director of the FBI, which was about four months, uh, I was uh, conducting the investigation under the leadership of Archibald Cox. He would, I would meet with him every morning and he'd say, here's what we're going to do. Uh, today, can you give me the following agents to follow up on that? And I'd say yes every time. I wasn't there to run the investigation for him. That was his job. Uh, and when the president asked me to fire him, I could find nothing wrong that Archibald Cox had done. I had promised the president that I would not fire him except for extraordinary improprieties. That was the phrase we used. And not only had he not done an extraordinary improper uh, method, everything he'd done was positive. I would get calls from the White House saying he's sometimes from the president, mostly from uh, mostly from Al Haig, who was then the chief of staff, saying that Archibald Cox is getting into areas he shouldn't be involved in. He should stay out of that. Every time I talked to Archibald Cox about it, he backed off. He said, I do not want to be accused even remotely of not carrying out my responsibilities, so I'm going forward. And I told him that. I said, there's no reason to fire him. Um, Bob, there's been... Um increasing talk about uh, using the 25th Amendment. And under a provision of the 25th Amendment, if the Vice President and a majority of the Cabinet declare before the Congress that the President uh, is unfit to serve, he can be re removed from office. However, if the President disagrees with that, uh, <laughs> which he probably would, 
Sounds like a law school exam question already. <laughs> <laughs> the, or the, uh, the, the cabinet and the vice president would have to re make another case before the Congress, and it would require a two-thirds vote in both the House and the Senate. Uh, is this even a, a more unrealistic um, scenario than impeachment? Yeah, I guess what I can say is, look, I'm not a 25th Amendment expert, right? I, I think what I can say is, for myself, what I find most concerning right now, and I'm, what I'm seeing is just what you see. I don't have any other information, right? I just read the newspapers and see what's going on is potential obstruction of justice, right? What's going on with Russia, right? Those things are of interest. The 25th Amendment, I, I just don't, you know, I, I don't know, right? And so in terms of legalities of that or how that'd be enforced, uh, that's not where I'm focused to the extent I think about that. Um, and, you know, uh, frankly, I think the, my personal view, the time that's best spent for everybody, whatever role we happen to have, right, journalist, right, citizen, attorney general is, you know, focus on what we can control and what we can do. Because there's a lot there, is my view. There's a lot there. And I know it's interesting, but I feel like that can be like the shiny object right now is this 25th Amendment discussion that's going on. I get that. It's interesting. And I know there's the book out that I haven't read that gets to it. But I don't know. I guess I just prefer to to focus on things that I feel to me are more tangible and more real that are happening right now. And uh, um, so I just don't know in terms of the legality of how that plays out. By the way, um, if you are New York Times subscribers, the editorial today is on the 25th Amendment. I seriously recommend that you read it. New York Times? Yeah, and the punchline basically is, is don't count on the 25th Amendment. The punchline is, you know, do the normal checks and balances and vote next year in 2018, basically, is the, is the ending of the editorial. Uh, but, but sort of playing out this idea of a constitutional stress test, and you both alluded to this, um, um, Mr. Ruckel's house, you know, all eyes and you, are on Bob Mueller as, as they should be. If he is somehow fired, how does that change the calculus of what we're discussing? Oh, that's today? a big difference then. The president has fired the man charged by both the Constitution and by the Justice Department with investigating uh, activities that he may be, have been involved in. Uh, and, you know, nobody should go around have the power to fire their investigator, their own personal investigator. And when the Saturday night massacre took place, the House immediately convened the Rodino Committee this was in October. In the first part of November, they convened the Rodino Committee uh, to investigate impeaching the president. By the following July, uh, the Supreme Court's efforts to, or the, the Supreme Court turned over the incriminating tapes to the special prosecutor. Uh, by then, uh, a different man, obviously, than Archibald Cox. Uh, but that was, in, in and of itself, that was enough uh, to, well, the, the tape that showed that he had a smoking gun in every hand and every pocket uh, <laughs> were, were uh, sufficient to convince the Congress that they had to move. And by the 9th of August, they did. They uh, forced his resignation. He, he could have stayed on, but he would have been uh, not only impeached, but convicted. So, Bob, you were shaking your head, firing a special prosecutor, counsel in this case? Yeah, absolute game changer if that happens. You'd see members of both parties in Congress expressing that. I just think that'd be a, 
I, that's a bridge too far for the president. And it sort of reminds me of, to such a degree that I remember after that first travel ban, when we won, uh, and the federal judge, Judge Robart, here in the Western District of Washington, issued his order stopping it. And there was a period when national news was saying, hey, will the president honor that order, right, by that oh, federal judge, correct. right? And look, that'd be a constitutional crisis, right? If the president did not honor the actions of a federal judge, it'd be the same thing. He was thing a here, so-called right? judge, right? And he called him a so-called judge, right? right. And uh, that's exactly right. right. And uh, uh, so I, I would, uh, yeah, pointed by George W. Bush, so-called judge. And, uh, but I, I would say that it'd be a similar situation here. If there was a firing, uh, that kind of takes saying. us in that. You're, you're in a whole nother ball game at that point. That's right. You are. Uh, he, and for both cases, it, you uh, you trigger a process that you're then very much a part of. And the the, the reason our, the, the Nixon tried to fire Archibald Cox, he was getting too close. Uh, that's what, from my vantage point, that's what I expected, and it turned out to be true. The same thing would be true if the, the current president tried that with Mueller. The, the public would decide he's, he's, Mueller's onto something, and that's why he's being cashiered. <laughs> Excellent word. Okay, so we're, we'll open up the, uh, your fine questions from the audience. Yeah, there are many of them. Yeah. Uh, Bill, when you returned to the EPA as the fifth administrator, you were exceedingly effective at rebuilding the agency and its mission. Will it be, be possible to rebuild the EPA after Pruitt? On the central environmental challenges of this gener generation, how far have we been set back by Pruitt and this administration? Uh, it was relatively easy to restore EPA's morale and, and uh, mission uh, the, in 1974, or excuse me, 1983, uh, and the administrator uh, at the time was not nearly as skillful as this one is in identifying the uh, weak points in the uh, mission of, of EPA and taking advantage of them. He, he, can, he can do a lot of damage. He's, the EPA operates through the rulemaking and they, there's rules that are under study, there are rules that have been proposed, there are rules that are halfway through. It takes about two years to get to the whole process of adopting a new rule. Uh, he's gone after every one of them. He's stopped the ones before they are surfaced. He's tried to re reverse uh, where the rule is going now. These are all to protect public health, to protect public health and the, and the environment. Uh, so and he's determined to do it, and he he's, he's, hasn't got the best lawyers in the world, but he's got some good ones. And there are a lot of people resisting that, including attorneys general around the country, uh, as well as uh, environmental organizations that are trying the same thing. So he, but nevertheless, he can do a lot of damage, particularly if he's there for four years, uh, that will take a long time to recover. We're, we're, where we are today in cleaning up the environment uh, is 44 years of work. Uh, it's not perfect. I mentioned it a little while ago, government doesn't always work. EPA is not a perfect agency. It makes people mad, and they don't like to be told what to do by the government. They don't like to be told how to manage their land, and they don't like necessarily paying more money for something because it's got environmental protection and public health protection in it. 
but those functions are crucial for free societies to perform at the governmental level or it cannot succeed. And if we, if we tear this whole apparatus down, this infrastructure that's been put in place, it'll be a long time for us to recover. Just one thing I would add to that is, um, agreeing with everything Bill said, I think it's been helpful for us, and we've worked with other AGs, California, Massachusetts, and New York in particular on, on these issues with the APA and, uh, and Mr. Pruitt, um, is that fortunately for us, from a legal perspective, in their rush, the current administration, in their rush to roll back all those environmental protections put in place by the Obama administration that Bill alluded to, uh, they are very sloppy in how they do that from a legal perspective. Uh, I'll spare you the, the legal details of something called the Administrative Procedure Act. You're, you're, you know you're in trouble with an audience if you're quoting the Administrative Procedure Act. But, <laughs> but it's, it's a law, a federal law, that requires agencies to... It's the equivalent of telling your nine-year-old twins when my kids do their multiplication, they have to show their work, right? right? You, know how that, you have to show your work. You can't just write an answer. You've got to show how you got there. It's the same thing with the Administrative Procedure Act. You have to have public comments. You've got to do an analysis. You've got to pro-con it. You've got to do a process before you reach a decision. Fortunately for us on the legal front, one reason we've had so much success is we've gone back to that Administrative Procedure Act over and over and over again because they're in such a rush, I'm convinced to roll all those things back all at one time, they leave, frankly, gaping holes for my legal team to exploit, and that's why we've been successful. Okay. From the audience and a little bit off topic, what are your thoughts about uh, Jeff Sessions' efforts to revoke the coal amendment, I think it's called, and Nick's, uh, the current rules on marijuana in the state? And I know we've talked about this before, but it's a question. Oh, a huge <laughs> issue. Um, so uh, I'm trying to think of a short answer. So I guess one thing I would point you to with Attorney General's recent memorandum, which essentially rescinded this thing we call the Coal Memorandum. The Coal Memorandum, just to highlight, was written in uh, uh, August of 2013, I believe. Uh, so the first year that Washington and Colorado had legalized marijuana, what it said was it gave guidance to states like Washington, Oregon, uh, to say, hey, as long as you follow certain criteria, keep marijuana out of the hands of children, don't get it beyond state borders, things we agreed with, basically they said, we'll leave you alone. Okay, that was sort of the agreement. Those were priorities we shared. Okay, and we had conversations with Eric Holder directly about that face-to-face, -face, and that memorandum came out. That's been rescinded by the Attorney General, essentially saying, hey, U.S. attorneys, you can use your enforcement as you see appropriate when it comes to marijuana. One thing that did not get as much attention, it's in the footnote to his memorandum, and lawyers always know to bury the big stuff in footnotes, so I'm going to raise this for you, is that right. he also rescinded something called the Ogden Memorandum. That was written in 2009. That memorandum was written to U.S. attorneys from the Department of Justice again, saying, hey, for states that have medical marijuana, they literally said, it is not a priority to go prosecute people who are using medical marijuana, for example, to treat cancer, okay, to deal with cancer. Not especially remarkable, right? So, and there's now 29 states that have legalized medical marijuana. He also rescinded that memorandum to say that that was a low priority, it's not a priority at all to go after medical marijuana patients. He rescinded that as well. So it's not just the states that have legalized recreational marijuana, like Washington and now others, but all the 29 states that have legalized medical marijuana. Essentially, Attorney General Sessions is communicating to his U.S. attorneys throughout the country, you can have at it if you think you want to do it. Remarkable, right, and troubling. So um, I can't say much more on the legal side of what we'll do. What I can say is that if the federal government tries to do anything to stop Washington State from 
going forward with legalization of marijuana, you know, I can assure you our, our legal team is prepared for that and there would be a legal fight around that. So uh, it's a big issue and one we're prepared for. This one is also for Bob. Uh, Trump and his acolytes are busy packing the judicial system at as many levels as possible with judges who are often totally unqualified or so right-wing that they will influence our judicial system negatively for decades. What strategies can be employed in the years to come to blunt their impact? Well, I first thought that comes to my mind is you know, three words. Elections have consequences. They do. You know, I mean, to your point, hey, well, what can I do and what, I, what can I do? Look, that's, that's a reality. You know, uh, Republicans control the House, the Senate, and the White House. And the number of federal judges who have been appointed last year is very high. Believe me when I say that most cases are determined. The U.S. Supreme Court is critical, of course, right? And don't get me started with President Obama not getting that justice appointed last or two years ago now, I guess, right? But any lawyer will tell you those federal court appointments at the trial court level and the federal court of appeals, two places I was a law clerk for, are monumentally important. That's where 99% of the laws that federal laws that are being interpreted and analyzed are taking place by those judges. Those appointments are being made. Um, you know, what can we do? Well, I mean, it's, you know, elections matter. I mean, if that's really all there is to it. Elections matter and who controls Congress matters tremendously uh, when it comes to whether Congress approves or does not approve uh, those, uh, those appointments, yeah. So this one is for you, um, Bill Ruckelshaus. From your experienced perspective, can you describe three, we don't have to do three, um, key steps that got us to our dysfunctional uh, Congress and democracy today. Come you get on, to Bill. pick. You get to pick. How about ten? <laughs> uh, I think fundamentally the issue is trust. Uh, free societies simply don't work very well unless there's a fundamental support and trust among the people of that society that the government is trying to do the right thing. Uh, and that trust began to erode in the Vietnam War. Uh, it, it got a big push from the Watergate, the, the absolute top of the government, somebody was not doing the right thing, was in fact doing several wrong things. And it's been eroding ever since. There was a survey taken in the first or second year of Kennedy's first and only term uh, in which they asked the question, do you fundamentally trust the government to do the right thing uh, in our society? 63% said yes. Uh, something like 18 or 19% said no. The rest either didn't care or didn't know. Uh, and that, that peak, because it was a peak, has been eroding ever since. It doesn't, it's not on a steady downward slide. It sometimes moves up and then bounces down again. But in the last uh, year in which those kinds of questions were asked, you found 14, 15, 16% people would say yes. We've got to do something about that and start very hard to make government work and get people more attentive to what's going on in their government, pay more attention uh, to what's what's happening, uh, and, and just as Bob says, get active politically, vote. Whatever you do, but please vote, because things won't change unless you do. 
so I think, I think it, I'm a, like Bob, an optimist. I think our government will survive. Uh, I mean, I've been asked by people, would you ever take a job in the federal government again, given what happened? My answer is absolutely yes, I would. Of course it's risky, of course it's difficult, and you don't always get your way, but there's nothing that gives you more, gives me and, and I'm sure other people more satisfaction than serving in the high levels of American government. And if, if you ever get a chance, take it, uh, because you, it'll be something you'll remember the rest of your life, and it'll make your life a lot more meaningful. You want to take a quick stab at this? Do you want to take a quick stab at our dysfunction situation? I mean, the one thing I'll just put out there is I do think it's a big topic. It could be its own conversation, but uh, the, the redistricting that we see at a national level, which has had the result just, it's been established, of fewer swing districts, more districts that are heavily Democratic or heavily Republican. What's the result? Candidates on both parties go to their base, go to their base, and you represent a district that is heavily tilted one way or the other you stop having to have those conversations with the other side, whichever side you're on. And uh, that, that redistricting has been a contributor. I don't think it's the biggest reason necessarily, but I do think it's a contributor that's going on. Okay, I don't know if either of you have views on social media, but we got a, a question about social media, so I'll make this a jump ball. Either of you can answer it. Um, I'm impressed that this older audience asked a question on social media. Uh, has social media impacted democracy positively or negatively? And how can we use it more wisely to protect and enhance democracy? You're going to ask me? I'm 85 years old. I don't use <laughs> I can barely turn the television set on. That's great. <laughs> but Bob is active on social media because I follow yeah, him. I guess so. Um, and by social media, I assume we also mean, hey, the press and maybe that we're active, right, in terms of instant communication. I mean, I guess I kind of like it. You know, I, I'm not big on it, right? My wife doesn't even have a Facebook page, to be clear, right? She's a very private woman. Um, so I'm not create. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm, but I, I like, as an elected official, I like being able to communicate directly to people right away about what we're doing. I, I like that. And I like people can respond kind of in real time. Now, look, are there downsides? Yes. Do I read the comments sections to articles about me? You know, no, no, I do not read those to oh, my no, wife. No, no, you know, I do not let those. her read them at all, no, ever. No. And my, my oh, brothers, no, no. Get, I, I get updated by my brothers on them. That's about it. And uh, but uh, so, I mean, obviously, are there downsides? Of course, right? But I guess I kind of come down overall as embracing it. I, I, I like that level of communication, instant communication. And uh, I think there's a real positive there. Downsides, of course, but I think overall, it's a good thing. Uh, I've got the same person asked, uh, sounds like he wants to join, join with you here, Bob. He says, how can citizens of Washington support the cases you are bringing? What do you need from us? Um, well, I, I guess what I would say is, uh, um, look, if you see someone from my office, thank them for their work, right? I mean, <laughs> truly, it's, uh, I mean, it's a team effort. There's a lot of folks who do this work. They are working extraordinary hours, to put it mildly, right? Sometimes around the clock, these briefs come at all hours, and it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big operation. And, I mean, we're sort of uniquely situated as a law firm, right? Um, but I will say, you know, 
thousands and thousands of people around the world and thousands and thousands of Washingtonians wrote letters to my office, right? My team sees those. I read some of them at our attorney conference we had recently. There was about 600 lawyers in my office, 600 professional staff. When I gave my remarks a few months ago, I read from some of those letters. So I think that's, in some ways, that's the main thing. And the other thing is staying active, right, in terms of just in the body politic, to, to Bill's point. But um, I don't think it ever hurts in being active and voting. If you see someone doing something you support, I don't think it ever hurts to write them a note to that effect. I, I read them, and, uh, and you know, it's uh, within the Washington State, the letters I received. We received so many, you know, I decided uh, I would handwrite a note back to someone who hand wrote a note to me. And I thought there'd be like 50 of them, and 50 turned into a, a couple few thousand. It was a big job. And after the travel ban, a lot of handwritten letters came in in addition to emails. And so, you know, I, uh, I did that, and it was, uh, if you'll just indulge a short story, I, up to that point with our nine-year-old twins, we hadn't really said much. I was gone a lot, uh, but I hadn't said much to the kids about the travel ban. We didn't try to explain it to them. When they asked why I was gone a lot, I just said, look, the president did a bad thing and daddy's trying to stop him. That was pretty much, <laughs> that, that was, that, that was, that's what I said. And, oh, uh, boy. <laughs> and, uh, but I started getting so many letters, I started bringing them home so I could handwrite these notes. And one night I was at the dining room table and Katie, my daughter, was next to me and she asked me, hey, daddy, she's doing her homework. She said, daddy, what's that? And she'd seen a letter. I got letters from kids. Their parents had obviously had them write me letters. And so this was a letter from a child, Katie's age, uh, who was from uh, Iraq, if I recall correctly. And she'd drawn this funny picture of me, which got Katie's attention. And she could see a child was writing to me. And she asked, why was the child writing? And so you know, I explained, you know, this family, what the child wrote was, because you stood up, I can be here, right? Which was, you know, a beautiful note. So you know, it was fascinating because Katie could engage on the issue through the lens of this girl her age, right? And the impact on her family and that that girl could be Katie's friend. She'd go to school with Katie. And so Katie, God bless her, said, well, you know, Daddy, why are you writing back? And I said, because it's polite. And she said, well, can I write her a note too? And so what she did, and so for every letter I got from a child, Katie would write her own note and draw her own picture on it. So, I mean, your, your notes go further than you might think, right? To that they impact people and they impact people. And the last question, because I made a promise that uh, we would end at right around 7.15. See how Let me I make a that? statement. Let me say something about what oh. Bob just said. I th Bob, let's not feel sorry for him. He's got the best job in the state. Uh, Who said we felt sorry for him? 50, 57 years ago, I was the chief counsel in the Indiana State Attorney General's Office. It's the best job I ever had in my life. It was, it was more fun, there were more challenges, there was more interest, and there was almost no partisanship involved. He's got a great job, and I think he's doing a great job, so we ought to give him a okay. so, so nobody feels sorry for you. What they do want to know is how your skills in chess um, helped you set up some of these lawsuits, and that'll close it out for us. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, I, mean, I spent, look, uh, when I was a kid, I started playing chess. I was very serious about it. Uh, when I finished high school, I didn't go to college right away to try to become a professional chess player. My, my parents were mortified by that, as you can imagine. Uh, but it's, I say that because it was a, outside my, the influence of my family. It's the most formative part of my life. I just spent thousands and thousands of hours thinking about chess and playing chess and studying chess. So you can't spend that much time doing anything and not have that inform the way you think of the world. And I guess what I would just, you know, I'm sure my team is tired of all the chess analogies I tell them at the office. I, I tell them any, but I'll just give one. And that is that, 
you, chess teaches you many things, right? Anticipate your opponent's move. If your opponent makes a move that you did not anticipate, that's a problem. And so a lot of what I feel we do, and I think we do it effectively, is try to anticipate what the president will do. The travel ban's a good example. One reason we were able to file that lawsuit right away is we had talked about that in advance. We anticipated that. The other thing I just will say to maybe wrap it up is that of all the things I think that chess teaches, one of the most important, at least for me, was it, it teaches the importance of taking a calculated risk. Um, in chess, if you want to win, uh, at some point in almost any game, you have to make a move that is committing. Right? You're not going back to where you were before. You have to leave a safe place in your position. You've got to take a chance. And there's risk involved. You risk losing the game, uh, but you must do that in order to try to win the game. Right? Um, and you know, without taking that calculated risk, you will not win. And I, I really felt that, in, in my experience playing chess, I felt there were two kinds of chess players, right? Uh, chess players who can, are willing to take that kind of calculated risk and those who aren't. I had my weakness as a chess player, but I always felt I could if I felt I needed to. I wasn't afraid of losing, how's that, right? Like, if I thought my best chance to win was doing it, well, crap, I'm doing it, right? And so, in my experience, too many politicians don't take calculated risks. Too cautious. Too damn cautious, honestly, right? And so, in making that decision with Noah, and I wish it was a conversation people could listen to, it just was a conversation about the law, honestly. We're just talking about the law, we're talking about the Constitution, but clearly there was a risk involved, right? A, a big one, in a way, but I knew if I didn't do it, sort of the position of my state was bad. People being turned away at the airports, right? Employers like Amazon, Expedia, were gonna lose their access to quality employees. So yes, was there a calculated risk? I, I felt that it was, but I just felt it was one that needed to be taken in my job representing the people who I represent. And was there a risk of losing? Yes, uh, but I think it helped me certainly in that moment to feel like, hey, I've been here before, I, I need to do this. And it made the decision, frankly, not, not so difficult. Well, thank you, Bob. Thank you, Bob and Bill, for coming tonight and thank contributing so to our dialogue on democracy. Thank you, audience, for your wonderful questions and your participation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Attorney William Ruckel's house and Washington Attorney General Bob Ferguson took questions from Larry Hubble, director of Seattle University's Institute of Public Service, and multimedia journalist Joni Balter at SU's Pigot Hall on January 11th. Thank you to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Tune in again soon.